0: Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you are new to our church, uh, my name is Dave. It's my privilege to serve here as lead pastor. And we've been going through a series called Life-Changing Conversations. And the intent of the series is to remind us that one of the the calls that we have as Christians and one of the privileges we enjoy is that we get to talk to other people about the joy of our salvation, about the relationship we have with Jesus Christ. And from time to time, it'll be our special experience that as we talk to somebody else about Jesus, their eyes will be open to him and they will fall in love with him and receive his love the same way that we have. And I know that Um, this whole dynamic of giving away our faith has taken on a bit of a negative uh, tinge in our culture. Um, We hear phrases like shoving it down people's throats or imposing our views and worldviews on other people. I don't know where all that comes from. I, I do know that there are faith traditions and people who do it that way. But I haven't had experience of that kind of evangelism in a long time. I think if anything we've come full circle to a place where we're very gun-shy, very hesitant to talk about our private faith with anybody. And so I want to equip you through this series to, to think about ways that we can grow in engaging people in life-changing conversations. And this week, we're going to look at loving. I, I looked at hundreds of pictures. What, what could... Uh, this one was just cute, so I just... Uh, it seemed harmless enough, so I just picked that one for loving. And uh, I really thought about doing that to my own fingers all week because I just (laughs) like that picture. Um, I want to draw from John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. And here's what Jesus said in this passage. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this... Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You know, there's a great saying I used to hear all the time in the church that people won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's a little play on words, but it's true. People won't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That almost trite, familiar, simple phrase says something really true, and it is this, that even though it is our privilege to be called to share our faith with others, the act of giving away our faith with somebody is not primarily an act of salesmanship or persuasion or knowledge, it's not that the person is missing information only, but that what really people are hungry for is some tangible experience of real love. And while we're meant to experience that for the first time in family, the truth is that's not everybody's experience. I've met so many people over the years who cannot honestly say that they learned what love is growing up in their family. And so, so many people are still wandering around the world today wanting to know, is love the kind of love that my heart is really yearning for, longing for? Can it be found in the world? I love what the Apostle Paul writes in the opening verses of the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's what's traditionally called the love chapter, and he opens it this way. He says basically what that little saying says, but more eloquently. He says, if I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans, and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains, but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor, and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. I think what Paul's really saying is, without love, what I say What I know, what I do, even what I sacrifice amounts to nothing. That the critical ingredient of every truly life-changing conversation is love. And in this scripture that we read this morning from John chapter 13, Jesus describes what I might call a divine love triangle. Okay, A divine love triangle. It looks something like this, and I'm not going to interact too much with this diagram, but I just want you to make note of it because there's something in John 13, 34 to 35 that describes this triangulation of love that happens when we share our faith with other people. It begins with that first line says that God loves us, and then because of that, we are able to love others. And as we love others with the love of God, they come to discover and experience in a direct way, the love of God themselves. That's not a guaranteed process. It doesn't always happen. But this is the way that people who are far from God have opened into a relationship with God for centuries that this divine love triangle exists so that all three play a part in the process of the growing and expanding kingdom of God. And I want to look at this divine love triangle at each side of that triangle and see what Jesus is saying to us out of John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35. The first thing we want to look at is God's great love for us because that's really the right place for us to start in talking about love. He opens the command with the words, a new command I give you, love one another, but then sandwiched between the two repetitions of love one another, he says this very important phrase, as I have loved you. As I have loved you, that's how you should love one another. Because if you didn't give that qualifier, we would love each other the way we know how, the best way we learned, by our wits, by our instincts. We would love each other according to our definition of whatever love is, such as it is to us. And if you didn't grow up experiencing divine love, or the love of family in the healthiest sense, then you will struggle and stumble to love others in ways that are sometimes really dysfunctional. Some of you may have wondered why every attempt to love people has ended up pushing people away. It may be because somewhere along the course of your human development, something went amiss, awry, in the way that you processed and understood love. And so what Jesus says is, I'm giving you a new standard. It's not that nobody's told you to be loving before, but I am now setting the standard for what love should be. I am going to define for you, What love looks like. That's why it's a new commandment. Because I am now the scale against which you will measure what is and what is not true love. You want to know a great icebreaker or conversation starter? Just ask somebody, how would you define true love? How would you define true love? It's fascinating to listen to people struggle to define the very thing which they so often have felt deeply that they're missing. I think most of us know the truth of this, that apart from receiving the love of God, it is exceedingly difficult to give away our love to anybody else. Some of us might be going through a season like that right now where you're finding it really hard to love other people. I'm not going through that season right now, but believe me, I have passed through it. Many many times where you're like, you know, God, it's my job to love people. I'm trying really hard. But they're stretching me, man. I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Have you am I the only can you guys not leave me hate? Have you ever have you ever felt that where you're like, it's really hard to love people right now? I'm trying and I'm hearing the command. I know I'm supposed to do it, but man, it's not coming out of me. And even though you're told to do it, you can't just produce love on command that's just something i've learned in life i can't tell someone love and they're like oh yeah okay i could do it yet jesus boldly commands us and when he adds that middle phrase there what he's saying is the the way to learn how to love people is not it's not the, by the road of effort but by experience Okay. What he's saying is the solution when, we're, when we read a command like this is not to try hard to be more loving, but to first try really hard to be loved. What I mean by that is whenever we struggle to love other people, it's usually a deficit of receiving, not of giving. It usually means somewhere along the way we got unplugged from the source. That's why I'm not able to give back out. When I struggle to love other people, I know that what I need to do to fix that is not to aim my energies at trying to be more loving to others, but to get away from everything and sit with God quietly and reflect on and receive his great love for me. That's why getting away regularly, I used to have a very solid discipline of doing this. It's fallen apart in recent months, but I used to go for 24-hour personal retreat once a month. And I didn't do it to strategize and plan and brainstorm for the church. I did it as a matter of spiritual survival. I needed to get away from everything just to plug in and receive from God. Because when I don't do that, it's like having a computer that's not online. Do you remember those days, guys? I have some older people who we used to, for a decade, we used computers without the internet. It was basically a digital typewriter. That's all it was. And now the thought of an unplugged, offline computer, it's like a brick. What's the point of having a computer that's not on the Internet? But believe me, I lived through the early days of computing where that's all we had. And sometimes that's what life feels like for me when I try to love people without being connected online, receiving the love of Christ for me. John would later go on to write in his first of his, his uh, short epistles, in 1 John 4.19, we love each other because he loved us first. So if you don't have that experience, you may as well give up trying to love other people because you won't be able to do it without being filled first. If your heart is empty and you have not received the love of Christ, you will grow to resent the call to love other people because it, it, all love is costly, it's, exp- it's expensive, it's not cheap to love people. You know that. If you've ever really loved people, it comes with a price tag, and if you're not receiving as you give out, you will grow to resent how much other people need from you, even demand out of you. And so it's important that we grow in the experience of being loved by God so that we're able to actually give out love to other people. Jesus, in talking about the ultimate expression of his love, his crucifixion, said in John 12, 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, quite literally, when he's raised up on that cross, he said, through that act, I will draw everyone to myself. It is such a beautiful theological and visual picture for me. He would, when he's lifted up on the cross, ultimately expressing his love for humanity, he would, through that act, draw all people to himself. That verse has always reminded me of the Christ the Redeemer statue in Rio. It's one of my lifelong dreams to see that statue. I think I will be deeply moved if I stand at the feet of that statue. And I've always loved the idea that watching over this city is a ginormous Jesus with arms outstretched basically saying to everybody, I'm here. Anytime you want to stop dancing around at Carnival and You know, how fitting that this statue happens to watch over a city most known for its festival of flesh. I tried to find photos I could use of Carnival to kind of designate Rio, and all of them would have to be blurred, so I just gave up. But that's the city over which Jesus stands, arms outstretched, and that is so appropriate. Do you know that Brazil, by a long shot, leads the world in homicides? The last time that reliable figures were available was 2012, There were nearly 50,000 people murdered in the nation of Brazil. That is over three times the U.S. murder rate. That's insane to me. 50,000 people whose lives are snuffed out by someone else. And that's the place where Jesus watches over a city with his arms outstretched, as if to say, it's precisely in a place like this that my invitation to everybody matters the most. These are the people who need to know what God's love means. That there's nothing we do that repels God away from us, that extinguishes his ability to love us. You will meet lots of people who will love you for a season, who will love you while you're lovely or lovable, but do one wrong thing and the love shuts off like a faucet. There's a shelf life to all other loves, but the love of God is inexhaustible. You can go back to him apologizing for the same nasty thing you've done a thousand times, and he will not roll his eyes and turn away from you. This is the love of God, and there is no other source of love that comes close to it. If you try to understand love by looking to your parents or your grandparents or your friend or your spouse or your children or any other place, you will fail because those people don't have an inexhaustible supply. In order for us to actually love anyone, but especially those who are hard to love, we have to remember that the ultimate source of love is Jesus Christ, who loved us when we were the most unlovely. We we remember this because we we also remember that we have no claim on that love. We have no entitlement to it. It is always a gift to us when we receive the love of God. And when we receive that love, when it begins to fill us, only then are we actually capable of obeying his command to love one another. And that's why before I say to anybody here, get out there and love people, the first thing i got to say to you is sit quietly and receive the great love of God for you. Because if you don't have it, you can't give it. Once we receive that love, though, we truly become capable of loving another human being. And married people, let me see your, your hands. How many of you are married? So look at this, a lot of married people. Okay, you can put your hands on. The next question is going to be less easy to answer. How many of you have never stopped perfectly loving your spouse? Yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. <laughs> it is not a small thing to say of another person, I love them with everything I've got. It's so easy to say. The words just roll off my tongue. I love you. Words are cheap, aren't they? It's so free. You just say it, and it's like, ha, ah, ha, look at that. Loving is easy. Wouldn't love be so easy if it were just words or if it was just a feeling? But The truth is, Love has never just been a sentiment or an expression of words. What I love about the way God loves, when he says love one another, he's saying, look, when I tell you to love each other, don't look inward, look upward. Think about the way I have loved you. And in Romans 5.8, we learn something very important about the nature of divine love, true love. And first thing we learn is he demonstrates it. He doesn't just go, I love you all so much. I love you, I love you, I love you. If that's all it took, every one of us would have a PhD in love. But God demonstrated his love. And that word demonstrate is really, he gave proof to it. He showed that it was more than some thought, some idea. It was something real in time and space. It existed. And I think that's important because I've met lots of people, and let me just say, most of them of the male persuasion, who say, they know I love them, I'm I'm not good at expressing it. Then you're not good at loving. If you're not good at expressing it, then you're not good at loving because that big secret held inside love is not love at all. It's only good for you. Love does not nurture a single other person when it's not expressed. So let's... Guys, especially, let's do that. Let's pull that large stick out of our back end, and let's learn to actually love people expressively. Here's the truth of what I've seen about people: most people have about six notes that they can play emotionally, and that's it. Okay, and a lot of guys, especially, don't want to grow beyond that. I I try to stretch them a little. Try saying this. I I can't do that. That's not me. That's not you now. But what are you saying? What are you saying to God and to all the people in your life? I'm done growing, I'm done stretching, this is who I am, on it. I will never learn anything new. I know the songs I know and I don't want to learn any new ones. Is that the statement we're making? Is that emotionally this is a repertoire you're always going to get from me and even the living God of the universe can't bend me to give more than what I've decided I am. Shame on you. And what a pity for everyone you say you love if you're so stunted emotionally that this is as far as you can go and even God cannot stretch you to learn new notes. Love unexpressed is love that's imaginary. It blesses only you in theory because you claim to have it but no one else receives it. If you're dying and some guy goes, yeah, I'm a doctor. I don't practice, but I'm a doctor. And in fact, I'm the best one on earth. Good for you, buddy. Sucks for me, but great for you. You know it, but it's your little secret. And we don't want to love like that because that's not the way God loves anybody. He pours out, he expresses, he verbalizes, he demonstrates. Love for it to be real is expressed. Are we together on that? And I'm not trying to shame those who struggle, because I know the struggle is real. But just because a struggle is real and substantial doesn't mean it's insurmountable. That's the struggle you've got to struggle through. That's what growth means. And so if you're having a hard time becoming emotionally, what's the word, unconstipated, pray. But don't give up because it's hard. I know some of you, that was imprinted on you from childhood, but God wants you to know that there are people in your life who are starving for the love that is pent up inside of you, and it's got to be expressed and demonstrated somehow. And one of the ways God demonstrated it to us is he gave it to us when we were least lovable and least lovely. While we were still sinners, in other words, while we were yet his enemies, he demonstrated the ultimate expression of his love for us. And that's hard, isn't it? Because the truth is, it's not easy to love the unlovable or the unlovely. And you know that old saying, hurt people hurt people, right? People who are far from God, people who have damage and have pain, they act in ways that don't exactly invite love. Think about the angst-ridden teenager who's always going, get off my back, you don't know me and all that, and they're just pushing everyone away. But in their hearts, what they want is everyone to come near. And it's so confusing. They're pushing you away, but they want you to come close. And you're like, well, I don't even know what to do for you. And at some point, you, you may be tempted to go, you're just crazy. <laughs> you're not lovable. No one knows how to love you. You are insane. Do you ever feel that way about somebody? They don't even know what they want. It's so confusing, and, and at some point, you might want to check out and go, I'm done trying. There's futility in trying to love you, and what God says is, I know it's not easy, but that's precisely the place where our greatest love needs to be demonstrated are those very people who don't invite that love inward. And so while we were still sinners, God loved us by having his son die for us. If you want to know how loving a person you are, Don't measure by how well you love the lovely and the lovable. Don't say, you know, my wife was always so good to me. I totally love her. I'm very loving. Every mammal does that. Okay. Every human being loves the lovely and the lovable. That's not that great a trick. You want to know how loving you are in terms of the divine love of God. Always look at the people in your life who are the hardest to love. And that will be a really objective way for you to measure, am I growing in love? Am I growing in love? God will pursue you by sending people in your life who will be exceedingly hard to love. He has always done that for me. He does it still to this day. There are people in my life that really stretch and challenge my ability to love honestly. And thank God for those people because if it weren't for them, I'd stop growing. Another way he demonstrates this love to us is he does it by dying. And here's the truth. I cannot think of any definition of true love that does not include sacrifice. You can describe true love in a million different ways, but if it doesn't have an element of cost and sacrifice, you're no longer talking about true love. All real love ultimately amounts to sacrifice, among other things. The ultimate expression of God's love was seen on the cross of Jesus Christ. That should say something to us, that at the heart of what we call love is the willingness to pay an impossibly great price for the benefit of somebody else. And I found that this is also extremely challenging because there's a price I'm willing to pay and then beyond that, I'm seriously struggling to go more. And that's precisely the place my life keeps bringing me to, is, (laughs) come on! I already did so much. What more? And lo and behold, that person will ask for more. I'm like, that doesn't even seem possible. And yet, I must go there. And that's also good for us, because it's one way God is continuing to pursue us to say, this is what real love looks like. I love the story that after the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that devastated Japan... Do you remember the 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 Daiichi um, nuclear plant in Fukushima had a meltdown, and there was hazardous radiation nuclear waste everywhere. And they needed to clean it up, but it took a couple things. It took some courage to clean it, because you're going to get exposure to radiation, and it took some technical expertise. There were about a 1,000 cleanup workers on site, but most of them were under 30 years old. And one retired engineer, this guy, I'm sorry... What happened to my slide there? Okay, right here. This guy, Yasuteru Yamada, 70 year old retired engineer, said it's wrong that we are sacrificing a thousand young people who are very susceptible to radiation exposure, have their whole future ahead of them. I'm 70. If I get exposed and get cancer five to 10 years from now, I'm almost done anyway. And so in order to spare the next generation, he put out the call to all these other retired scientists. We have the expertise, and we're old. Let's spare the younger people this dangerous exposure. And he rallied nearly 400 seniors to don these radiation suits, put on Geiger counters, and they spared the next generation by saying, it's not any less dangerous to us but we're more familiar and comfortable with the idea of death than you are. You stay put, and we'll do the work. And when I read that story, it moved me really deeply, because something, maybe because I'm getting a little older, but that kind of generational sacrifice so moves my heart. There's no reason to do that other than a genuine concern for other people's welfare. And when I see acts of sacrifice like that, it stirs something deep inside of me. I recognize it as divine because I hear it and I immediately say to myself, I want to grow up to the place where I can be like them. I want to be that brave, that selfless someday. I aspire to that. I can't honestly say I'm there right this minute, but that's what I want to be when I grow up. Every single act of real love ultimately carries a price. And so as we think about the way we're called to love others, starting with the family of Christ, but extending, spilling over our community into everybody we know, one place to look is, is there a cost? Am I willing to go there in loving other people? And as we demonstrate this kind of love it's going to have an effect on the people around us. Not as a sales pitch, not as a marketing ploy, but because it's so truly foreign, it's so novel. This is something that we other people look at and they go, I don't know where that comes from. It's hard for me to explain it. And so God's love for others will be... It'll be made possible in large part because of the experience of our love for them, which is made possible in turn by God's love for us. This is the, the I almost said bizarre love triangle. can't get that song out of my head. This is the divine love triangle we're trying to describe here. That as God loves us and we love them, something profound will happen because they are now sensing something that makes the hair on the back of their neck stand up. I think most people don't ever see anyone love the unlovable and the unlovely because there's no gain in it. What's in it for you to love someone who's acting ugly, who can't pay you back or confer any benefit to you if you get on their good side? And why would anybody sacrifice to the point of losing yourself for the sake of another I will sacrifice out of the margin so that I stay flush but I give you my leftover that's not that hard well it's hard but it's not impossible but to demote myself even to bring myself below your present state in order to lift you up that is not a normal thing would you agree with me on that you don't see that every day when my wife and I are deciding how much to give to charitable causes, I'll be honest with you, our baseline assumption is, well, this is what we need to live, so let's not get crazy. Let's give out of the delta between what I earn and what I need to live. That's our nut. That's that's the, the room we have to give. But each time I dig into scripture, there's this, always this nagging voice that goes, is that all? Is that the boundary marker for you? What if I asked you to give so that you're worse off than the person you're helping? Is that even conceivable? And honest truth is, right now, I don't know. I don't know. And if I experienced, if I witnessed love like that, it would get my attention, because I don't see it everywhere in this earth. It's so foreign, it's so otherworldly, it's going to get my attention. Somebody once asked Mohandas Gandhi, a close friend of his, actually, he was famous for having this great admiration for the the historical figure of Jesus Christ. He read the scriptures more than most Christians, and he said, "This, this Jesus guy is lovely. There's nothing to criticize in him. He is the embodiment of all the best religions of the world. So Mohandas Gandhi was a famous admirer of Jesus Christ, and one of his close friends, Finally challenged that said, if you admire Christ so much, why don't you become a Christian? And here's what he said, when I meet a Christian who is a follower of Christ, I may consider it. He wasn't trying to be a smart aleck, he wasn't trying to be argumentative. I think what he's saying is what the whole world is always saying, you people are the proof, good or bad, for the message. Your lives make us wonder if this is all just another choice, another way of life, another culture, another crutch, or whether this is a touch with something otherworldly, something truly divine, worthy of full commitment. Because Jesus himself describes a way of life that is hard to see among the people who follow him. I think that's why Francis Chan's book, Crazy Love, emphasis on the crazy part, has gotten such a following because he's he's basically saying, what if we dared to live life in modern America by the ideals laid out by the life and teaching of Jesus Christ in the first century? How crazy would that look? How attention-grabbing would it be if a community of people took God's word seriously and literally and began to follow him? Not just identify with him, name him, celebrate him, sing to him, but follow him. And I think that's what Gandhi was trying to say is there's such an incongruity between Jesus himself and those who bear his name. Now granted, he lived in a time where his entire life except the last year was spent under colonial British rule. He didn't see the most redeeming picture of Western Christianity. And so I'll grant him that much. If he came to Harvest, he'd be a Christian today, right? (laughs) Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? But man, what a powerful statement. That our lives become a living demonstration of the otherworldly truth of the gospel in person of Jesus Christ. That's an awesome responsibility, but that's an amazing privilege that our lives could be that for people. And Jesus says it. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples. At the heart of evangelism is about letting people who don't know Jesus know him. And how will they come to know him? It's not just a string of words and facts, because that's not the hard part. I can give you a gospel presentation such as it is in five minutes, tell you every factual thing you need to know about the redemptive process, but that won't get anyone to believe it. The belief often comes in experiencing someone's life who embodies this very literally, and makes you wonder how it's possible for a normal human life to be lived this way. Because it's until you see that level of genuine transformation, it's easy to be skeptical about all these things. Christianity demands so much, but it shows so little today, doesn't it? And so you hear, God wants 10% of your gross income. He wants four hours of your Sunday morning, usually early when you'd rather be sleeping He wants you to stop doing half the things that make you feel good in life. He wants you to feel bad about things you used to feel good about. It asks for so much. But the nagging question for most people is, all right, that's okay. I suppose if I found something worthwhile, I'd go that far. But what is in it? What is happening here? What is this exactly that I'm giving so much up for? And that's where our lives and the real demonstration of divine love makes a huge difference, because love like that is jarring to witness. It grabs you. Let me just uh, wrap up this last point with a beautiful excerpt from a book called *The Magnificent Defeat* by a theologian named Francis uh, Frederick Bickner. Okay, Frederick Bickner. He writes beautifully, and in this book, The Magnificent Defeat, he describes the kinds of love and the, rea- the world's reaction to them, and here's what he writes, okay? The love for equals is a human thing, a friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, and the world smiles when it sees that kind of love. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely, this is compassion and it touches the heart of the world. This is interesting. The love for the more fortunate. (laughs) That's a hard one. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man, the world is always bewildered by its saints. But listen to this last one. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you, but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love and it conquers the world. Amen? If there's one force in the universe that has great, great power, it is love. I believe it is the most powerful force in existence. It's the one thing that actually has the power to change a human heart. Nothing else can do that. If it matters to us that people should see Christ on this earth, they're going to see him most visibly through love. It is through that love that the heart opens to the truth of the message. And apart from that love, it will just be one more idea in the marketplace of ideas, one more bunch of noise in a very noisy world, and frankly, who's got time for another sales pitch? It is love that proves the concept that this is of God and it's worth everything. And so let me close with a couple of life applications. And the first is do a love audit. It's a weird phrase. I didn't know how else to phrase it. Okay? I think we are obsessively analyzing other people's love for us, aren't we? I said, tell me about how your best friend loves you. You could probably go on for an hour at Starbucks telling me about their failings and their victories and all that. But when's the last time you audited your love for other people? Children out there are begging their parents to think about this. Spouses are begging their spouse to think about this. When's the last time you seriously reflected on how loving am I? Not by my own standards, but by the testimony of those who I claim to love. There's a couple ways to do this. I think the safest way to start is to do it in private. When you graduate from that, start to ask people, I don't know, how loving am I? And I think God gave us a great framework for doing a love audit by giving us these chapters of Scripture in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7. You know that cross stitch you have on the wall that you got for your wedding gift that you never really look at? You're sometimes yelling at each other right in front of that cross stitch. (laughs) Oh, yeah! Well, remember last time... They're beautiful words for an audit. And the way I would recommend doing it is everywhere that it says love is, replace it with the words I am. Okay? So here's how you do it. Just sit in front of a mirror and say this and see how it feels, how it sounds coming out of your mouth. I am patient. (laughs) I am kind. I am not jealous. I love when my friends do well. And I don't. I'm not boastful. I'm not rude. I don't demand my own way. This is a hard one. I am not irritable. That's when your family goes, right? I don't keep a record of being wronged. And on and on it goes. As you go through this love audit, and you think about how those words sound to you, how honest they feel as you say them, It's a good way to do that guided reflection because this is what God in his scriptures told us love looks like and feels like when it's practiced, when it's demonstrated. Do those words feel true of you? And then you can graduate from that to say those words in front of some of the people closest to you and say, tell me when you feel like laughing. Make sarcastic sounds. Whatever you have to do, just I need to know if I'm like this, because I, the, the goal is not just to feel humiliated or guilty, but to say, I need to know where I'm not as loving as I imagined I am, because I want to grow in that. And then as you go through this audit, the result of any audit is a report card, right? An, it's a verdict on how you're doing, and when you get that, I'll give you a second life application, We just create a love plan. It's, listen, when I say create a love plan, here's what I mean. As you get convicted by your audit, do something about it. Don't just go, oh, I'm just kind of an irritable person, I guess. Everyone in my life is validated. I'm irritable. I'm rude. I'm not kind. I have an elephant's memory for things done wrong against me. Those aren't badges of honor. They're not like Boy Scout badges to taped to your lapel. There are people around you saying to you, please grow in this. Please do something about it. And so in those places, I would take that and say, God, the people I care about have spoken, and I'm really struggling in this area. I need to grow in this. Do something about my irritability, because nobody likes it, and it's so visible to everyone. I thought I was hiding it well, but apparently I'm not. Everyone knows I'm the most irritable person in our family. I need help, God. And then ask him, don't just help me in this invisible way, but help me know what I can do to grow in this. Point me to scriptures that will counteract the source and root of all of this. So my time is up. I just want to encourage you, reflect a little bit on the love you give. We reflect an awful lot on the love we receive or fail to receive But really think about how loving a person am I? Because in the end, I think that's one of the greatest ways we demonstrate and reflect the reality and truth of the person and claims of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org.